Turn to 2 Kings chapter 4. But as you do that, it will appear on the screen. But before we read that text, I want to give you just uh, some, some, some essential background, some essential context to this passage we're going to be reading tonight. As we set our hearts in expectation for what God is going to do over the next few days. 2 Kings chapter 4 is preceded by 2 Kings chapter 3. That's deep theology right there. You're going to have to go to Bible college to get that theology, people. 2 Kings chapter 3, though, is this phenomenal narrative of a man named Elisha who comes and intercedes and, and helps on behalf of three kings. This huge political uh, situation, this fracas is taking on, and Elisha, for time's sake, I won't give you the background, go read the narrative, but he steps in, God's man for the moment, and brings deliverance for three nations. This is huge on a spectrum they haven't seen before. Three nations come together, God speaks, and God delivers the enemy into their hands. It's earth-shattering news, it's headline news, chapter three of two kings. Then, 2 Kings chapter 4 from verse 8 onwards, just after the narrative we're going to read tonight, is another massive story where Elisha, again, the central character in the story, meets a woman who is a very lani lady. She's got huge finance, financial clout in the community. And this amazing lady has trust God and, and Elisha prophesies she's going to have a son. Miracles happen. She has a son. And a while later, that son dies. Elisha puts up on the scene again at her request. And there's a resurrection miracle that takes place. A dead boy comes alive. It's like these two stories of power, political power where Elisha comes on behalf of God and brings breakthrough. On the other side, it's resurrection power. It's just power, power. And in the middle of them is this tiny little story, 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 1 to 7, about a widow who's running out of food. It almost seems like it doesn't fit in the sequence of events, earth-shattering events, resurrection power, and I don't have enough food to eat. But what I love about the fact that that story is wedged in there, it reminds me that we serve a God who cares just about as much what happens in the country as what he does in the kitchen cupboards of your home. That we have a God who is both powerful and intensely personal. We serve a God who is transcendent, far above, higher than we could ever ask, dream, imagine. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. He's transcendent, but he's also imminent, closer than your hands and feet knowing every thought in your head. I love the fact that the God who holds the stars is the same God who bears my scars. This is the beautiful reality of our, our King who is uh, Jesus. It's only our, only our religion, only our faith that has a God who can at the same time straddle that line of, of all-conquering King and yet closest friend. It's only Jesus who can do this. The Jesus that I love is the one in Psalm 23 starts off by saying, the Lord is my shepherd. Let me read that more properly. The Lord, Yahweh, the great, almighty, powerful God, is my shepherd. Oh, it changes everything. Intensely powerful, intimately personal. That's the Jesus we read about. And we read into that story, that's the context we arrive at, at 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 1 to 7. Let's read it together. It says this, one day, the widow of a member of the group of prophets came to Elisha and cried out, my husband who served you is dead. And you know how he feared the Lord, but now a creditor has come, threatening to take my two sons as slaves. What can I do to help you, Elisha asked. Tell me, what do you have in the house? Nothing at all, except a flask of olive oil, she replied. And Elisha said, borrow as many empty jars as you can from your friends and neighbors. Then go into your house with your sons and shut the door behind you. Pour olive oil from your flask into the jars, setting each one aside when it is filled. So she did as she was told. Her sons kept bringing jars to her, and she filled one after another. 
Soon every container was filled to the brim. Bring me another jar, she said to one of her sons. There aren't any more, he told her. And then the olive oil stopped flowing. When she told the man of God what had happened, he said to her, now sell the olive oil and pay your debts and you and your sons can live on what is left over. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that tonight we come in this evening, in this room, to an intensely powerful and yet an intimately personal God. A God who is above the storms and yet a God who is in the storm with us. I thank you, Father God, as we gather around your word this evening as a community and posture our hearts in faith. I pray, would you come and would you heal every broken, every beaten, every barren, every betrayed heart. I pray, would you fill every empty dream? Would you fill every empty bank account, every empty promise, empty life? I thank you, Father God, that things that are in deficit will find the running over of our God tonight. I thank you, Father God, that you are faithful in every season. And it's that God that we come to tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to give us four essential ingredients, four essential ingredients to restoring the flow of God's Spirit in your life. Four essential ingredients to restoring the flow of God's Spirit in your life. It sounds like a book, hey? I'll write it soon. Number one says this, desperation. Desperation. The first ingredient you need to add into your spiritual life is the sense of desperation. The scripture starts off by saying, one day, the widow of a member of the group of prophets came to Elisha and cried out, my husband who served you is dead. Now our creditors come, threatening to take my two sons as slaves. I love those two first words in that text. It says, one day. And we probably all are aware of the power of one day, one moment. One moment that can turn your life upside down. One phone call that can turn the trajectory of your year, your life, totally upside down. Something can happen, one illness, one diagnosis, one job loss, one offense, one betrayal, one failed exam, one sin eating away at you internally, one person die, and it's almost like the, 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 the flow of your joy, your peace, your righteousness, your goodness, your, your, the God's faithfulness in your life, it seems, and all evidence in front of us seems to stop in a moment. That was the case for this woman, a faithful woman, a godly woman, whose husband served the Lord, and he's dropped down dead, all of a sudden, she realizes that the policies that she had in place are not going to pay out the thought amount she thought she would have. She's put her CVs up, and no one's employing in this economy. It's famine, it's drought. She's looking around. Her boys are trying to hustle a little bit with a, with a side job, a side hustle. Uh, and and then all of a sudden, she realizes that actually the, the bills are getting bigger, and the money's not coming in quick enough. Not only is she dealing with the loss of her lover, her husband, but now there's financial pressure that's crippling her. So much so that actually now creditors are coming, knocking on the door, saying, as is the custom in those days, you can't pay your debts. We'll take your sons as collateral. This is a desperate situation. But I love this lady. In this moment, one day where that phone call came and changed her life, there's this moment for her where this one day could do the exact same thing in the opposite direction. Where the flow of God's favor seemingly had stopped in a moment. In one moment, I believe God's favor can start flowing the other way again. The God's source, sense of his spirit in your life can start flowing again when we understand this principle. The one day we start to understand, when you start to understand the grace of God, the goodness of God that intersects with your lowest moments, that finds you in the deepest valley, that finds you at that moment, I tell you, and then when we start to understand that, it starts as a trickle, but it can become a tidal wave in your life, and we have to just learn to go with the flow. Hear what I'm saying? I'm not saying go with the flow, but go with the flow. So why don't you turn to your neighbor, and why don't you encourage them tonight, and say, go with the flow.
Come on, go with the flow. Now, nice. Now, now turn to the neighbor you ignored and tell them, you too, go with the flow. Good job, everybody. You see, everything in this woman's life was going with the flow in one direction, but there had to come an apprehending of a situation and say, I'm not just gonna go with the flow of my depression, my devastation, my betrayal, my financial chaos, my mess, my heartache. I'm not just gonna go with that flow. I'm gonna apprehend that with a sense of desperation. You see, it says, one day she came to Elisha and the scripture says, she cried out. The text says she cried out to him the facts of the situation, but she was coming because she's saying, I'm not going to let those facts to determine the course of my life. I'm coming to a different source. You see, as she, I heard those words and she cried out. It reminded me of a story in the New Testament where Jesus is walking and the whole crowd is following him with anticipation. And it seems like this whole flow of life is going this way, but it's going past a blind man called Bartimaeus who's been sitting in the same place and the flow of his life stopped many years ago. People would come by, people would move by, people would throw a few coins, but he was just trying to hold this whole thing together. He could not see, he could not, he just got a bit, a bit of affirmation from people, maybe a bit of compassion, but nothing ever changed for him. The flow of the city was going past him again and again and again, but one day he heard that Jesus of Nazareth was coming past. And something inside of him said, I'm not going to just let Jesus come past. I'm, there's a desperation in me. I'm going to apprehend his flow of life. And he cried out. It says he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And everyone else walking past said, quiet, blind man, quiet, don't bother us. We've got an agenda. You sit in your place. You stay in that situation. But it says he would not be silenced. He said, turn down for what? And he went, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And if you know the end of the story, Jesus was apprehended at that moment and came and brought healing, sight to that man, and changed the whole flow of his life. Go with the flow? He said, no, I'm going with the flow. I want to understand the flow of God's spirit in my life. You see, I want to ask us the question, where are you taking your de desperation? Where are you taking? Yes, situations are happening in your life, very real situations, your depression, your anxiety, your fear, your insecurity, your, your tension around finance, your, your frustration in your relationship, your addiction that you're just trying to, trying to keep down, you're trying to promise you'll never do it again. Where are you taking that sense of desperation? Are you suppressing it? Are you medicating it? Are you venting it, telling everyone about it on Facebook? Or are you in desperation taking it and pouring it out on Jesus? A sense of desperation that with the status quo, with just the going with the flow, I'm just, that's who I always be. need to grab hold of our hearts and, and say, I'm not going to stay in the same flow. I'm not just going to keep going with the flow. I'm going to change directions tonight. A sense of desperation needs to pull it in our hearts. As the psalmist says in Psalm 63, Oh God, you are my God. I earnestly search for you. My soul thirsts for you. My whole body longs for you in this parched and weary land where there is no water, where the flow has stopped. The psalmist says, but I'm going to go search for a different flow, a different source. It's not in the economics of the day. It's in you, God. Source of desperation is to rise up. But I want to tell you that's not enough. Desperation is not enough. We need to move to the second stage. And when the stories I read in this narrative, I see her desperation becomes and has led to a sense of expectation. I love this situation. Elisha says to her, what can I do to help you? Now, I imagine she was like, thank goodness you asked that. She was about to get out of her list and go, you know, I've got these bills and I need pay. I don't know if you've got PayPal. I'm happy to do it anyway, Elisha. You know, that if, if you're able to help us, if you're able to maybe recommend some, some people that can come, some lawyers can come help the situation. I've got a long list of requests. But before she can say any of those things, Elisha says, what can I do to help you? Tell me, what do you have 
in your house. Can I imagine? It's like, that's like Elijah, you've just heard the, the devastation of my situation. I'm coming to you for help, and you're asking me, what do I have in my house? To which she replies, nothing. Have you not been listening? He's, he's just like your father was. Never heard a word I said. I said, we have no more money. What do you have in your house? Nothing, she said. And I, I, I've become very aware of that word, nothing. I pick up, Fee and I will pick up our little kids after school, and they've had a long day of school, and say, kids, what did you do at school today? Nothing. Wow. We pay a lot of money for nothing. And, and I know that situation because I get home and I say, Fee, open the fridge. I say, Fee, I'm so hungry. And she'll say, yeah, get something out of the fridge. I say, Fee, but there's nothing in the fridge. She's like, there's a lot of things in the fridge. But to a male perspective, there's nothing in there. And some of you might even say, you're going like this. After the, the whole of lockdown, you've watched nearly every show you can on Netflix. You go, there's nothing left on Netflix. I've searched the depths of it and I've come to the end. Nothing. But I love how this text doesn't stop there. He says this, this says nothing, and then there's a comma, and I imagine that comma being a long pause. She goes, nothing! And then it's a comma, pause, and he says nothing. And he's just chilling. The prophet's like, and he goes, you sure? You sure? And she goes, just a little bit of oil left. That's all I've got. That's, I've literally got, I've just got a little bit of oil. And it's at this point when I was reading the text, I was convinced I was going to call this sermon essential oil, but I knew it might get confusing. So I thought, no, let's leave that one aside for this time. <laughs> a little bit naughty of me. But I, I love this reality when she said a little bit of oil because it's so profound because in Scripture that, that little bit of oil that she was neglecting is of huge significance in Scripture. If you start understanding the principle of oil in Scripture and what it sim symbolizes, what is used for in that culture, a little bit of oil still has huge significance. You see, oil was used for anointing, pouring out authority, a symbol of a power, and in the New Testament of the Holy Spirit. A little bit of oil... It's not inconsequential. But actually, her eyes had been trained to see the nothing over the something that God could use. I love it. It's not just in this narrative. God said it once before to a man named Moses who was standing in front of a nation called Egypt and called to lead the people of God into freedom. And says, Moses, you're going to lead them out. You're going to lead the people. Let them go and take them into the wilderness to worship me. And Moses says, me? And I'm paraphrasing, but he is almost in a sense saying, I've got Nothing. I can't do that. I can't speak. I don't have a gifting. I don't have authority. I don't have any relational sway with it. I've got nothing. And then God was almost quiet and said, what's that in your hand? It's a stick. He said, I'll use that. I can use that. The, the disciples, and in John chapter 2, there's some servants who come to you and say, we've run out of wine. And he says, well, what have you got? We've got nothing. Jesus steps into the story and says, hey, no, you don't. There's, what are those six water jars? Bring those things here. Fill them with water. We can work with that. The disciples, a little bit later, say, Jesus, send all these people away. There, there are so many people here. We cannot feed them. Let them go and find some child somewhere else. And Jesus says, no, you feed them. And they go, we've got nothing. You know us. We've got no money here. And in that moment, Jesus says, no, look again. What do you have? Uh, a little lunchbox with five loaves, two fish. Jesus, I can work with that. You see, this is the sort of understanding I need to remind us in this moment. Maybe your heart has become so smashed by the society, by, by life, by the situation, that we've, we've lost our sense of expectation of what God wants to do. And I, I want to tell you, in the Old Testament, there used to be fiery prophets who would come and stand and, and, and spit and shout at the people of God and remind them, you are going to die. 
Let me tell you, God has sent me, this red-headed prophet, to come and tell you, you're not dead yet. You're not dead yet. You might say, I've got nothing left. I've got nothing in the tank. I want to tell you, God says, there's something I can work with in your heart. It's going to be a sense of expectation start to grow in our hearts. We have to move from a sense of desperation to a sense of expectation. And thirdly, we have to move to a sense of surrender. I love this narrative because then in the response to that, Elisha says, borrow as many empty jars. Can you say the word empty jars? Borrow as many empty jars as you can from your friends and neighbors. Then go into your house with your sons and shut the door behind you. Pour olive oil from your flask into the jars, setting each one aside when it is filled. I, I love that word empty. It's just, I just loved it in the sense of that moment when I read the word empty, I realized that God is attracted to empty things. All the way through scripture, he's attracted to empty things. Actually, God does his best work with empty things. What I mean by that, let me tell you my statement tonight is that I believe that the church and my own life, if I'm honest, is often too empty of the Holy Spirit's power because the church and Gabe Phillips is too full of my own opinions, too full of my own perspective, too full on what I think is good and what I think is not, too full of what, how I think God should move in my life when actually God's saying, I'm not needing your opinions, your perspective, I need your surrender, your emptiness. This is the reality for you and I because our power as the people of God has never, ever been in a full room. The power of the people of God has never, ever been in a full bank balance. The power of the people of God has never been in a full emotional control or full understanding of what to do. The power of the people of God has always and always will be in an empty grave. This is the power of what God can do with empty things. You see, God does his best work with empty things. And that's why I believe fasting is so powerful. In a sense, we are weakening ourselves. We are emptying ourselves and saying, God, it's not my will, but your will be done. I'm not going to try and sustain my own self. I'm not going to try and keep my own appetites going with, with my own way of feeding. I'm going to submit myself and say, God, if you don't fill me and come through for me, this is going to just be a glorified diet. But I'm going to trust you that you fill empty things. You see, that's all the narrative of the scripture. Genesis chapter one, verse two. It says, the earth was dark without void and empty, but the Holy Spirit was hovering over the deeps. And it was in that moment, over that context, over empty things, that the life of God, the power of God was shown on full display. Empty things come alive in the hands of a good God. Genesis chapter two, God creates Adam, a lifeless being, and he creates him, fashions him, and he's this empty being with no lights on at home until God comes, an intensely personal God comes and breathes his life, his spirit into Adam, and Adam comes alive because God does his best work with empty things. Adam had no ability in himself to come alive. He was empty until the spirit of God filled him. God does his best work with empty things. Desperation, expectation, surrender. Fourthly, obedience. I love the scripture. It says that she did as she was told. I've underlined that in my Bible. She did as she was told because that is so contrary to what my wicked heart wants to do. I want to do, I wish if I read it in our uh, modern age translation, our woke version of the Bible will say, she did as she felt. I'm sorry, she did as she thought. She did as her Facebook feed suggested. She did as the Netflix queue 
prompted her to watch. She did as the next pop-up ad suggested her to click that link. She did as her emotions led her. No, no, no. But Scripture says she did as she was told. Oh, there's power in that. There's power in that because in that moment, she chose not to just go with her flow, the flow of her depression, the flow of her devastation, the flow of her financial pressure, the flow of the creditors coming knocking on the door. Everything inside of her saying, give me a different plan. But God said, no, this is how I need you to respond. And she said, all right, I'm going to do it with expectation, with surrender in my heart, empty jars, and obedience. I do it as I was told. And she opened up a new flow, a new flow in her life. You see, too often, we forget that God works with our obedience, not our intentions. That is so good that I have to say it again because only one of you said amen. That was my wife. God works with our obedience, not our intentions. Too many people say, I want to do for God when God says, well, why don't you? I'm waiting for God to open. No, no, God says, step out in faith. Obedience is powerful. You see, we are people who want proof, but God says, I'm gonna give you a promise. We're people who ask for outcomes, when Jesus says, no, I'm asking for obedience. This is the power of the gospel. You see, the story goes, it says she shut the door and she began to pour. I want to tell you, powerful things happen when we shut the door. Powerful things in Scripture. When, when situations seem so desperate and everything inside of us says, start the petition, go on Facebook and start saying faith without hints and telling people how, you know, oh, I need some help, I need this. No, or, or, no, powerful things happen when we shut the door and we go to before God ourselves. And seek his face. There's a man named Jairus in the New Testament who had, his daughter had died. And when he shut the door and allowed to kick those people out and allowed Jesus in, resurrection power could come in. When the disciples finally shut the door and moved up into the upper room, it was in that moment the Holy Spirit could be poured out. And we all know what happened famously when Jesus was put in a tomb and that stone was rolled in the way. Resurrection power was about to break out. This is what happens when we shut the door on the, the flow of the enemy, shut the door on the way things have always been, saying, no, I want to start a new flow. I want to engage with what God is doing in my life. And I love the miracle kicks in. It says, her sons kept bringing jars to her, and she filled one after another. Soon every container was filled to the brim. Can you imagine that scene? Let's just not let her run away from it. That little bit of oil. She's like, guys, we're going to do this. The boys are a bit skeptical. And she starts to pour a little bit. And she's like, guys, I'm going to do this slowly so we can eke out the last little bit until we admit defeat. Pouring it into the Tupperwares, you know. And she goes, is it finished yet? Like, no, it's still going, mom. Whoa, there's maybe a lot more in that jar than I thought. Okay, that one's full. That's nice. One. Yeah, put it aside. Bring another jar. This will just be a little top up. It's still going. Get another, get another one, and, and, and get another one, and another one, and another one, and all of a sudden she's going, and the water's going everywhere, and there's chaos all over the show, and it is crazy, and I can imagine this all of a sudden, this, she's saying, oh, I've got the power, she's just loving it, it's just amazing, there's oil going everywhere, splish, splash, I'm having a bath, and it's just amazing, it's just like crazy, they are, they're ecstatic all of a sudden, they're like, this is amazing, there's a new flow in our lives, the desperation that was expectant, that was surrendered, that was being obedient, now all of a sudden comes with a new desperation, I want to see more, I want to see more, and it's a new flow, because now I'm desperate to see more, now I'm expectant to see more, now I'm like surrendering more, get more empty jars, because God works when we surrender, and in obedience, let's obey more, and when we see more, then we're going to say, actually, I want to be desperate for more, and there's a new flow that's established in our lives, not dictated to by our appetites and the lusts and the desires of this world, but actually with the Spirit of God flowing in our lives, I want more. 
This is the amazing thing. And here's the revelation I want to land with. God fills up that which we pour out. God fills up that which we pour out. You see, it becomes more when it is poured, not when it is stored. I feel like a rapper tonight. It becomes more when it's poured, not when it's stored. Moses lifted up his stick, and that's when the stick became a device to set the people free. The, 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 the servants, they poured in the water into the six water jars. And it was in that moment, not when they're discussing it, but when they're pouring in the water and carrying that water in faith and obedience. In that moment, that water turned to wine. It was in the breaking of that, and the boy, that boy's lunch when the disciples said, this is going to end in such embarrassment for us. Only two people are going to get a sami and, and, and a fish here. I don't know what type of meal that even is. But we're like, oh, and they do it. And suddenly, as they break it, it starts becoming more. It becomes more when it is poured. Because God fills up that which we pour out. I'm coming to land now. I love the fact in the Gospels, the writer Paul, in the, in the, New, in the, the, in the New Testament, he writes this one phrase. He's beaten, he's imprisoned, he's falsely accused. But at the end of his life, he says, I have poured myself out like a drink offering. That for me sounds like a different type of flow. A man who's not worrying about the beatings, the imprisonments, the shipwrecks, he's saying, no, there's a different flow. Yeah, you may come at me with all these different flows that try and distract me, dissuade me, pull me apart, but I've got a different source, a different flow, and I'm going to keep pouring myself out because the more I pour myself out, the more he fills me up. And this is huge for me. God fills up that which we pour out. My trump card is the man Jesus Christ himself. You see, when he came onto this earth, we found in Philippians 2 verse 7, it says that Jesus became nothing. Jesus emptied himself pouring himself out of his divine rights and took on the nature of a servant. He poured out his life unto death. And Jesus on the cross, as it felt like everything, felt like the enemy had won, when in that moment we cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In that moment, a silence reigned over humanity. In that moment, as it felt like the tap of God's favor and blessing and kindness was tightened for good forever. As the enemy rejoiced, the Son of God has been betrayed by his creation. They put the final nail in the coffin. It is done. Their tap or their flow of grace and goodness is finished. But they didn't count as he hung on the cross. All of a sudden, the only sound over all creation was this. Drip, 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 drip as his blood starts to flow. And his blood started to hit the ground. And a new source, a new flow was established. A source that could never be stopped up. That could never be silenced. That could never be dammed up. That could never be kept at bay. The, 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 the flow of God's grace, his goodness, his kindness, his forgiveness was flowing from Emmanuel's veins. And it flowed to our deepest depravity. It flowed to our late night shenanigans. It flowed to our greatest lies and depression. It flowed to the greatest moment of remorse and chaos in your life. That moment of devastation that one day that rocked your world. His blood went to that place and said, I'm going to apprehend you in that space, and I'm going to fill up every space that's empty. This is the good news of the gospel in that moment. I want to tell you today, when you have nothing left, the flow of his grace, the flow of his blood, the flow of his mercy never stops.